Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and in every episode, I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're covering three beloved martyrs of the Roman Empire. In this episode, we are going way back to the early church. And one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other world religions is how socioeconomically and racially diverse that it is and how little that that matters. Paul in Galatians 3 says there is no longer slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And that has been seen throughout the church going all the way back to the very beginning until modern times. And in these three stories we're going to hear today, they really could not be more different. They're separated by gender, they're separated by nationality, they're separated by time. And the only thing they actually have in common is that they're all killed by the Roman Empire. The only thing that they had in common is they were all believers. I want to begin with the story of Perpetua and Felicity. Like many of the early Roman martyrs, we don't really know a whole lot about Perpetua and Felicity. We don't know when they become Christians, how they become Christians. What we do know is they were young, both very young, early 20s, probably born around 180 AD. They lived in Carthage, which is now the country of Tunisia on the northern coast of Africa. The only reason we know anything at all today about Perpetua and Felicity is because Perpetua kept a diary after they were arrested in prison, and she includes every detail of their time in prison up until they are martyred, which is then filled in by someone else, by an eyewitness. This is incredibly rare in the early church. I don't know if this is necessarily the only thing like it, the only surviving manuscript like this, but it is certainly one of the very, very few. After Perpetua died, The diary was published under the name The Passion of Perpetua and Felicity and circulated among the early church. So because of this prison diary, we do know that Perpetua was born into a noble family. She was well-educated and recently married with a newborn son. Felicity was a slave in the household of Perpetua, and Felicity was eight months pregnant when they, along with three men, were arrested by Roman officials. Carthage had a vibrant and growing Christian presence, and when Emperor Severus ramped up his persecution of Christians, seeking to stamp them out as dangerous atheist revolutionaries, Carthage was an obvious target. In ancient Rome, the Romans considered the Christians to be atheists because they only worshipped one god and refused to give homage or give worship, basically, to the emperor. And so they were considered to be atheists. They were also considered to be cannibals due to communion and, and different things like that. But the biggest things they were considered to be were dangerous radicals that would undermine the Roman Empire. After these five Christians were arrested, another man named Satyrus came before the magistrate and proclaimed that he too was a Christian and then was also thrown into prison with the others. And these six believers were not yet baptized. They were still taking discipleship classes in order to be baptized. So they were both young in age and also young in the faith. But that's not to be mistaken necessarily for fragility. It actually is much the opposite. They were incredibly determined and strong in their faith. 
I mentioned earlier that Perpetua was recently married, had a newborn son, but in Perpetua's account, you will never hear anything about her husband. In fact, the rest of her family is included in some form or other in her account, but her husband never makes an appearance. My guess is that her husband was scared, wanted nothing to do with this situation, and thought it was better not to show his face. In fact, he may have actually denounced her and was making sure he was seen as far away from her as humanly possible. That's just my opinion. We obviously don't know for certain. One thing we do know is that her father was not a believer, and when he heard that she was in prison, he saw a very easy way for her to save herself. All she had to do was say that she wasn't a Christian. And her diary begins with his visit to her in prison. She says, While we were still with the prosecutors, my father, because of his love for me, wanted to change my mind and shake my resolve. Father, I said, do you see this vase lying here, this small water pitcher or whatever? I see it, he said. And I said to him, can it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. In the same way, I am unable to call myself other than what I am, a Christian. She says that her father was so enraged, he looked at her like he just wanted to pluck out her eyes and then left. And that wasn't because he was genuinely angry. I mean, he was angry, but he was just very, he didn't understand. He was very upset. He didn't want to lose his daughter. And when she had first entered the prison, she asked that her family take the baby because the conditions in the prison were so awful. But on the other hand, she also grieved the absence of her baby, and the baby grew weak without her. When she was so anxious for his well-being, she had trouble focusing on anything else. And after some guards were bribed, they were moved to a nicer part of the prison, and she was able to nurse her baby again. And she said, suddenly the prison became my palace, so that I wanted to be there more than anywhere else. Switching over to Felicity, she was eight months pregnant, and in Roman law, you could not execute a pregnant woman. So she was really worried that she wouldn't be able to give birth, and so she wouldn't be able to die with the rest of the group, and she would later on be alone and forced, condemned to die by herself, the death of a common criminal. And the group came together, and they prayed very earnestly for her, and she did go into labor. And while she was going through the labor pains, the guards were making fun of her for crying out and just being in pain. And they said, if you cannot endure labor pains, how will you ever endure the beasts? And she said, now I suffer alone what I am suffering, but then there will be another with me who will suffer for me because I am going to suffer for him. Throughout this entire account, you can just see how incredibly faithful they are and how dependent on God that they are. And Perpetua's diary picks up again after they've been in prison for a while. She says, A few days later, there was a rumor that we were going to be given a hearing. My father also arrived from the city, worn with worry, and he came to see me with the idea of persuading me. Daughter, he said, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father. If I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers, think of your mother and your aunt, think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. This was the way my father spoke out of love for me, kissing my hands and throwing himself down before me. I tried to comfort him and said, It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills, for you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but we are all in his power. And he left me with great sorrow. 
I can't even imagine how heartbreaking this would be because you know your father doesn't understand, but you also know that he's not lying. He is telling the truth. We don't know what happened to Perpetua's baby. We hope that he lived, but we really don't know. So all of these things, it makes a lot of logical sense. Why wouldn't you just say you're not a Christian and then you can come back and we can forget this whole thing? But like she told her father earlier, I cannot be anything other than what I am, a Christian. Soon after this, while they were eating breakfast, they were whisked away to the hearing, and the governor asked them one by one if they were Christians, and one by one they said yes. And when it was Perpetua's turn, her father rushed into the room with her infant son and begged her to perform the sacrifice that was required and come home to her family. And the governor himself, he didn't want to send this this young woman with a newborn baby uh, to her death. And he also said, have pity on your father's gray head and for the life of your son. And so he asked her, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. And her father throws himself at her feet. He's wailing and pleading until the governor had to beat him into silence. Once again, can you imagine how incredibly difficult this would be, how incredibly emotionally tormenting this would be to see your baby son, to see your father in such a state. And still she was resolved, not out of coldness, but because of her devotion to Christ. They were sentenced to be thrown to the wild beasts in honor of the emperor's son's birthday on March 7th, 203 AD. And I'm actually going to read directly from the eyewitness account here. The day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully, as though they were going to heaven with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step, as the beloved of God as a wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. They were then led up to the gates, and the men were forced to put on the robes of the priests of Saturn, the women the dress of the priestesses of Ceres. But the noble Perpetua strenuously resisted this to the end. We came to this of our own free will, that our freedom would not be violated. We agreed to pledge our lives, provided that we would do no such thing. You agree with us to do this. Even injustice recognized justice. They were then brought into the arena just as they were. Perpetua then began to sing a psalm. Then when they came within sight of the governor, they suggested by their motions and gestures, you have condemned us, but God will condemn you, was what they were saying. At this, the crowds became enraged and demanded that they be scourged before a line of gladiators. And they rejoiced at this, that they had obtained a share of the Lord's sufferings. For the young women, however, the devil had prepared a mad heifer. This was an unusual animal, but it was chosen that their sex might be matched with that of the beast. So they were stripped naked, placed in nets, and thus brought out into the arena. Even the crowd was horrified when they saw that one was a delicate young girl and the other was a woman fresh from childbirth. And so they were brought back again and dressed in unbelted tunics. First, the heifer tossed Perpetua, and she fell on her back. Then, sitting up, she pulled down the tunic that was ripped along the side so that it covered her thighs, thinking more of her modesty than of her pain. Next, she asked for a pin to fasten her untidy hair, for it was not right that a martyr should die with her hair in disorder, lest she might seem to be in mourning in her hour of triumph. Then she got up, and seeing that Felicity had been crushed to the ground, she went over to her, gave her hand, and lifted her up. Then the two stood side by side, but the cruelty of the mob was now appeased, and so they were called back through the gate of life. 
Perpetua then called for her brother and spoke to him together with the fledgling Christians and said, You must all stand fast in the faith and love one another and do not be weakened by what we have gone through. Immediately as the contest was coming to a close, and after one bite, Satyrus was drenched with blood. Shortly afterward, he was thrown unconscious with the rest in the usual spot to have his throat cut. But the mob asked that their bodies be brought out into the open. And so the martyrs got up and went to the spot of their own accord. And kissing one another, they sealed their martyrdom with the ritual kiss of peace. The others took the sword in silence and without moving, especially Satyrus, who being the first to climb the stairway, was the first to die. Perpetua, however, had yet to taste more pain. She screamed as she was struck on the bone, and then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. Ah, most valiant and blessed martyrs, truly you were called and chosen for the glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We'll come back to Perpetua and Felicity in a moment. For now, I want to transition us to Lawrence, another martyr whose early life we know nothing about. We do know that he was killed under Emperor Valerian, who was one of the worst offenders of persecution during the Roman Empire. He was possibly born in 225 in Spain. We do know he was born in Spain. And his parents are traditionally thought to be martyrs themselves. He met the future Pope Sixtus II, while the latter was a highly esteemed teacher in Aragon in northeastern Spain. The two ended up heading to Rome around the same time, and when Sixtus became Pope in 276, he appointed Lawrence as the first of seven prestigious deacons, despite his young age, and he was known as the Archdeacon of Rome. And this tells us quite a bit about Lawrence, that despite his young age, the Pope thought that he was a very faithful, serious, responsible guy. And he was actually responsible for the treasury of the church, and with it, the distribution of the alms to the poor. Not long after Lawrence had become the Archdeacon of Rome, Roman authorities passed a law which gave them the right to confiscate the goods and property of the Christians who had been denounced and killed. Following this edict, Emperor Valerian demanded the arrest and execution of all prominent bishops and deacons. Pope Sixtus II was captured and killed less than a year after he had taken his office. Now, fearing and knowing that his time was coming, Lawrence began distributing alms at a rapid pace, even selling valuable vessels to increase the amount and keep them out of the Roman treasury. Sure enough, the prefect of Rome approached Lawrence and said this, You Christians say we're cool to you, but that is not what I have in mind. I am told that your priests offer in blood, that the sacred blood is received in silver cups, that you have golden candlesticks at your evening services. Now your doctrine says you must render to Caesar what is his. Bring these treasures. The emperor needs them to maintain his forces. 
God does not cause money to be counted. He brought none of it into the world with him, only words. Give me the money, therefore, and be rich in words. There's a few things to note here about what the prefect says. Number one, he's incredibly mocking and condescending. Number two, he does seem to have a at least somewhat accurate knowledge of the Christian faith, at least in some things. He is calling them cannibals. He does say they offer sacred blood received in silver cups and things like that. So it's not an entirely accurate, but he knows enough to know how to try to manipulate what he needs. But lastly, he knows that he's going to kill Lawrence, and Lawrence knows this as well. He's just hoping that Lawrence is a good Christian and will do exactly as he's told because his doctrine tells him to do so. Lawrence told the prefect that the church was indeed rich and asked for three days to gather the riches and create an inventory. And after three days, he came before the prefect, leading a great number of blind, crippled, lame, maimed, lepers, orphans, and widows, and proclaimed to the prefect that these were the true treasures of the church. And the aftermath of Lawrence's decision has been long held in church tradition as being this. The prefect was so furious that he did indeed condemn Lawrence to death, but vowed that it would not be quick like the Pope's beheading. He ordered him to be roasted on a gridiron over a bed of coals. And after Lawrence had been on the gridiron for a long time, he cried out cheerfully, I am well done on this side. Turn me over. And then he died. What do the deaths of Perpetua, Felicity, and Lawrence have in common? They are hundreds of years apart. And if you want to go throughout all of church history, thousands of years apart. And the thing is, they could all go to their deaths with boldness, confidence, and even a little bit of humor because they knew, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, that this is no cause for shame, because they knew in whom they had believed, and they were convinced that he was able to guard what they had entrusted him until that day. And also Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The story of Perpetua and Felicity so moved Augustine that he gave three different sermons about them, and I will read a closing excerpt from one of them here as it was given on the anniversary of their martyrdom. It should not seem a small matter to us that we are members of the same person's body as they are too, even though we cannot compare with them, because if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. So too, when one member is glorified, all the members rejoice with it. Glory be to the head by which consideration is given to the hands above and the feet below. Just as that one man laid down his life for all of us, so the martyrs too imitated him and laid down their lives for their brothers and sisters. And in order that this bumper crop of Christian peoples might spring up like sprouting seeds, they watered the earth with their blood. So we too are the fruit of their toil. We admire them. They are sorry for us. We congratulate them. They pray for us. They strewed their bodies like garments on the road when the colt carrying the Lord was led into Jerusalem. Let us at least cut branches from the trees, pluck hymns and praises from the holy scriptures, and offer them in a joint expression of rejoicing. At least we are all in attendance upon the same Lord, all following the same teacher, accompanying the same leader, joined to the same head, wending our way to the same Jerusalem, pursuing the same charity, and embracing the same unity.
If you enjoyed this episode, please help other people find us by going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. If you would like to take the time to leave a written review, I always enjoy reading them. As always, thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.